Ready. Un, deux, trois. Good. Okay. This is Hebrews 2020. Increment 54, where are you? This is increment 54 of We See Jesus, Hebrews 2020. Kataratizai humas. And we'll open with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this wonderful opportunity for your word to travel forth with power, with clarity, and with the ability to save, preserve, deliver, and restore. And I pray that you'll open the eyes of all the listeners, that we may see wonderful things out of your word. In other words, that we may see Jesus. For I ask it in his name. Amen. Of all the things we've considered about Hebrews, perhaps the most striking to me has been the discovery of the phrase that's found in the introduction to no less than 55 of the canonical psalms in the Greek text. I've mentioned this before, but upon reflection during a brief hiatus, I wanted to consider this again and came back to it. Aistotelos, that's E-I-S in the Greek, T-O, and then T-E-L-O-S, Aistotelos. Literally, it means for the end. Again, this appears in the first line of no fewer than 55 of the 150 psalms in the scriptures. The N-E-T-S, for which I'm very grateful, the New English translation of the Septuagint, translates that phrase regarding completion. The reason I think this is significant is we could actually entitle Hebrews, our study in Hebrews, Hebrews 2020, by an alternative title called regarding completion. It's all about completion. It's all about perfection or completion. It's all about your completion, if you're listening to this right now. It's all about the completion of Jesus Christ through humiliation onto exaltation and onto a solidarity with all of redeemed humanity. Now, I have to give credit to Albert Petersma, who produced the translation of the Psalms in the NETS. And he's the one who translated that thematic phrase, aistotelos, as regarding completion. Again, this thematic phrase is found in the Greek text or the Septuagint in 55, think of that, canonical psalms. The PT, the pastor theologian who wrote Hebrews, uses the Greek text of the Jewish scriptures throughout this packed homily. It's notable that he chose quotations from Psalm 44, that's our English 45, and Hebrews 1, 8, and 9, and Psalm 8 in Hebrews 2, 6b to 8a, as the lower blade data, we'll explain that down the road, to support his thesis. Because both these Psalms, in your English Bible it would be Psalm 45 and Psalm 8, in key positions in his homily. Both of these psalms are introduced with that phrase, aistotelos, which means regarding completion. And so I've said before that this phrase 
helps to give Hebrews, the homily, the sermon of Hebrews, its eschatological coloration. But more importantly, it discloses the theme of Hebrews itself, which is completion, another word for perfection. There is a lot of perfection terminology throughout Hebrews, as there is in the Gospel of John and elsewhere in the New Testament. The completion of Jesus and the completion of humanity in Jesus is the theme of Hebrews. Completion is also translated as perfection. Again, it is about the completion of Jesus from his contingent humanity. That's the days of his flesh. His contingent humanity, a phrase we'll be using from now on in our study of Hebrews. It is a completion of Jesus from his contingent humanity and humiliation in the days of his flesh to his glorification to the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. A completion or perfection that brought about the completion of all of humanity in himself and himself in all of humanity. It's about the completion of Jesus as a sin offering for the sins of the whole world. It's about the perfection of Jesus as a high priest through the age like Melchizedek. It's about the completion of creation through him, through his death and resurrection. And it's about your completion. Hebrews 6.1, let us go on to perfection. Let us go on to completion, if the Lord permits. It's about your completion. Hebrews 10.1-4 also speaks of the completion or the perfection of worshipers that could not happen under the old Levitical order of sacrifice. Hebrews 13.21 also speaks about your completion using a slightly different word, karatizo, where in the benediction, the writer says that he wishes for their completion, which is God's will for them. The very spiritual life that you live and the walk that you walk, in order to clear up a metaphor, the walk metaphor, the very spiritual life that you lived is conceived in Hebrews as going on to perfection or completion. Aistotelos, then, is not only indicative of an eschatological orientation in Hebrews, and we are doing a theological exegesis of this great document, but it's even more a Christological one, making Hebrews a radically Christocentric document, perfect and tailored for such a time as our time right now. It's also anthropological because it speaks of the completion or the perfection of humanity in toto, the totality of humanity in all of its times. It also involves homardiology, the study of sin, because of the necessity that sin be put away totally and, and finally, which required the sinless Son of God to become sin so that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. The sinless son of God put away sin to become one with sinful humanity. 
This is what was accomplished when Christ appeared, says the scripture, once and for all at the juncture of the ages or the aeons in Hebrews 9.26. Hebrews and its subject regarding completion also entails soteriology because the whole vertical activity of God toward mankind is saving or redemptive in its effect because Jesus is called the founder of salvation and the one who secured eternal redemption. Hebrews 2.10, Hebrews 5.9, Hebrews 9.12. It also speaks of cosmology, or it's a cosmological orientation, because God's vertical activity and causality through his Son affects all of creation, the universe of creation, in all of its times, and speaks of what Hebrews 9, 10, and 11 calls a deorthosis, or a universal correction related to a new creation, to a world not of this creation. It includes an angelology, a study of angels, mainly because it shows the superiority of Jesus over angels and highlights the reality that God has chosen humankind above the angels to be the rulers of future world in which all the angels already worship Jesus even now as they are subjected to him. Hebrews 1.6, Psalm 97.7, or Septuagint 96.7. Above all, Hebrews is theological. It opens with the declaration that God has spoken definitively and finally, with finality, with an exclamation point, in a son, and the document closes with the declaration that this, quote, God of peace led up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus, and a benediction that this God would, quote, make you complete with all that is divinely good to do his will, producing in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory throughout the age of the ages. So in the end, tautelos, as it's used in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28, in the end, after all, God will be all in all. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 and 28. That the God who spoke with finality in a son, in 1, 2, in these last days, is climactically referred to as the God of peace at the end of Hebrews, speaks to the profound reality that God was in his Son, reconciling the world to himself. This is the gospel of peace, which our feet should be shod with in this time of fierce spiritual combat and conflict your feet shod with the gospel of peace, the good news that the God of peace has reconciled the world to himself in Christ, not imputing their trespasses to them. Now for the Son to make himself like us, he had to take on what we have, blood 
and flesh, in that order in Hebrews. And we're going to deal with that order. Why blood and flesh rather than flesh and blood? Why the order putting blood, chaima, first before flesh, sarkos? For the son to make us like himself in glory, listen carefully, he had to become like us in our humiliation. I will say that again. Now for the son to make us like himself in glory, he had to become like us in our humiliation. Moreover, during his humiliation and through his death, he defeated the culprit who tried to use death as his weapon to wield over all of humanity, making them slaves to fear all their lives. And making us sons in union with his son, God has done something remarkable. And we are now no longer to be slaves again to fear, but sons and daughters of God, as Romans 8, 14 to 15 puts it. So let's hunker down again on the text. I want to be, I want to hit the far side and the near. I want to go wide and I want to go centered here in our study. Hunker down once again in the text of Hebrews 2, 14 to 15, which reads like this in my present working translation. Consequently, since the aforementioned children have a share in blood and flesh, he, the son, also became a partaker of the same, so that through experiencing death, he would render hors de combat, the one who held dominion over death, that being Hodiablos, the slanderer, and liberate all those who all their lives were held in slavery to the fear of death. Now, this is the first use of blood in Hebrews, the word blood, chaima, and it's the There are 21 uses of that word blood in Hebrews, and there's no other New Testament book that I can think of right off the bat except Revelation that even comes close to that. Revelation has 19 uses of the word blood. And the 21 uses of the word blood is part of what I call the blood groove of the scriptures. When you see the forging of many swords like the katana, the Japanese katana, or other swords There is a blood groove, they call it, toward the length of most of the blade. The entire word of God is referred to as a sword in the scripture. In Ephesians 6.17, it's called the sword of the spirit. Now, that this this is a metaphor is shown in Hebrews 4.12, in which it says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. Once again, swords have often what is called a blood groove along the length of their blades or most of the length of the blades. This usually has little to do with blood itself. They are part of the forged blade to make the blade lighter and easier to wield by the warrior. But I'm using the term blood groove to show that blood is a theme that like a blood groove of a sword goes along the length of the word of God, the sword of the word. So throughout the word, there is, in other words, let me say it bluntly, throughout the word of God, from Genesis through Revelation, there is the testimony of the blood. 
which climaxes with, of course, the blood of Christ, which is a metonymy for the sacrificial death by which Jesus, the Son of God, was perfected or completed. Interestingly, he says and uses perfection terminology from the cross with the word tetelestai. It means a lot more than we ever thought it meant, as we'll find out more and more in this remarkably deep and wide and high and broad document called Hebrews. And so, throughout the word, there is the testimony of the blood. The word is a sword. The testimony of the blood is the blood groove in the sword. It makes the sword easier and lighter for us to wield in spiritual combat, but that's for another day. I'm going to develop that at another time. As 1 John 5, 7 through 8 says, listen carefully to this, for there are three who testify. I said the testimony of the blood, the blood groove along the full length of the sword. There are three who testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood. I almost want to get Pentecostal on that one. And these three agree. Now, Let's get down into a little bit more of the minutia of this verse. And I'll ask the question again. I've asked it twice before, including the last time I spoke. Why is the order of the words in Hebrews 2.14, blood and flesh, rather than flesh and blood, which we're used to saying? Both blood and flesh are significant components of our humanity, our contingent humanity, our present bodies of humiliation. But blood is more basic than flesh. Blood is more elemental than flesh. By that I mean that every human being has blood coursing in their veins. Blood is more intrinsic to humanity even than flesh. Flesh is outward. Blood is inward. Flesh may be of various colorations and pigmentations in its outward, most superficial layer called the epidermis. But blood is red. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and it is the lifeblood that makes expiation for sins, says Leviticus 17.11. Now, the second declaration of Leviticus 17.11 is alluded to in Hebrews 9.22, which says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is much more to say about this in Hebrews. I'm only introducing the subject to the point where it may be intriguing to you. For now, consider that life is associated first with blood, then with flesh. All the human race is of one blood. Man, is that needed for our times. This is what should be highlighted in our time. Instead of accentuating the most superficial thing, the outermost layer of the secondary part of humanity called flesh, the epidermis, judging one another by the pigmentation of the epidermis, 
which is the most external and therefore superficial part of the flesh. What is accentuated in our time is the most superficial thing. The tint or coloration of the epidermis, the outermost part of the flesh of human beings. On Mars Hill in Athens, Greece, Paul announced this to a symposium of scholars of philosophy. He said, quote, from one man, he, God, has made every nation of men to live over the earth. That's Acts 17, 26. The majority text doesn't always get it right, but I think the majority text or the Byzantine text got it even better in this case than the Nestle Allen text because it says from one blood. From one blood, he has made every nation of men to live all over the earth. More essential to humanity is blood than flesh. The children, that's humanity, whom the Son redeems are partakers of blood and flesh during the time of our humiliation, we could say. We have bodies of humiliation, says Philippians 3.20. We live in a contingent humanity. This isn't the final form that our human bodies will take. Thanks to the Lord who humbled himself and was exalted, we who are humbled will be exalted in him to receive a body of glory like his. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor, and he lives in a body of glory, soma doxa, which you can expect to inhabit one day when he returns from heaven and transforms us with the same power that he has to subject all things to himself. Philippians 3, 20 to 21. Don't forget that verse. And don't forget those two verses. And if you're smart, you'll memorize them. The word order, blood and flesh, is also found in Ephesians chapter 6, blood and flesh, in the context of spiritual warfare. We do not war against blood and flesh in this warfare. There are all kinds of flesh, says the scripture, that of fish and fowl, mammal and reptiles, and of human beings. 1 Corinthians 15.39 Human beings have one form of flesh, and we all share in the flesh that is human. The eternal Son of God was seen having the form of a man above, a man above, in Ezekiel 1, 26 to 28, before he became flesh. Ezekiel was relating a vision of God in Ezekiel 1, 1, and God was seen with the form of a man and the radiance of Yahweh. This, to me, is the fundamental vision of God. His vision of God was God in the form of, quote, a man above, who was also the radiance of Yahweh. The man above was not made of flesh. Listen carefully. That man above was not made of flesh, but he became flesh. That's John 
the one who had the form of a man above, in Ezekiel 1, 26 to 28, is the eternally begotten Son of God, who is generated by the Father and is consubstantial with the unbegotten eternal Father. He who is the radiance of God, Hebrews 1.3. He who is the radiance of God. Became flesh. Now in becoming flesh, as John 1.14 puts it, John says nothing about blood. Why not? If blood is so significant, why does John not say he became blood and flesh instead of the word became flesh? Why? John says we beheld his glory, full of grace and truth. He doesn't say blood and flesh, but only flesh. The flesh is what we can behold. We can't behold blood unless it's shed. The flesh is what we can behold. But it is not until the climax of John's Gospel that the blood of the one who became flesh was beheld. In John 19.34, quote, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. Though the word became flesh is the declaration in John's prologue in 1.14. In John 19.34, at the other end of the fourth gospel, <clears throat> it is clear that the word partook in both blood and flesh. For this reason, Paul says in Acts 20, 28, stay with me on this. Follow this reasonable correlation. For this reason, Paul says in Acts 20, 28, be shepherds of the church of God. This time he's not standing before a bunch of philosophers. This time he's standing in front of a bunch of pastors, shepherds, and he says, be shepherds of the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The Greek text of the phrase, with his own blood, is dia to hymatos to idio. The Son of God became flesh and shed blood. The Son became flesh in order to experience death, and so that through death... He would destroy the one who ruled in the domain of death, the slanderer, the one who became popularly known as the devil. It's not as good of a translation as either Hoponoros, the evil one, or Diabolos, the slanderer. The literal pouring forth of the blood of the Son of God spoke of the atoning death of the Lamb of God who had taken away or expiated the sin of the world so that there is now forgiveness of sins for the whole world. It is no accident 
that Jesus cried from the cross as he made atonement for sins. Father, forgive them. Now, that the eternal son became a partaker of blood and flesh. Like the children is of inestimable importance. I can't overestimate it. I can't overstate it. I can't repeat it too much. It speaks penultimately of the Son's perfect solidarity with all of humanity. And it speaks ultimately of God being all in all. Penultimately means second to the most important. Second to the most important thing of all in eschatology is the Son becoming one with humanity. Most important of all in eschatology is God being all in all. Now, it speaks penultimately, therefore, of the Son's perfect solidarity with all of humanity and ultimately of God being all in all, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-eight. That's what we also call the universal perichoresis, the mutual interpenetration of all creation with all of divinity. The flesh of the Son speaks of the incarnation. The blood of the Son speaks even more importantly of the instauration, the transformation of all things, even of evils, into the supreme good. I said that. Yes, I did. I said instauration, which speaks of the transformation of all things, even of evils, into the supreme good. The radiance of God the Father's splendor and the stamp of the God the Father's substance became flesh and shed blood. Let me say that again. The radiance of God the Father's splendor and the stamp of God the Father's substance became flesh and shed blood. This alone is a staggering truth. But the shedding of the blood of the Son of God and therefore of God's blood as the means of the redemption of humankind is even a more stupendous reality and defies description by human, human language or even by the tongues of angels. The perfection of God's Son is the completion of him. Regarding completion is what Hebrews is all about. The perfection of God's Son is the completion of him by a solidarity with all of humanity. It was fitting that he suffer to come into this completion, says Hebrews 2.10, and this perfect solidarity. Because to come into this complete solidarity Sin would have to be put away and utterly banished from the picture. For sin to be put away, the Son would become sin. So that we, all of humanity, would become the righteousness of God in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 In union with Him, in solidarity with Him, perfected with Him. Hebrews 10.10, This suffering occurred once at the juncture of the ages when Christ appeared 
Hebrews 9.26, 1 Peter 1.20. When Jesus was revealed, when Jesus arose from the dead, and we were all raised with him in Colossians 3.1, especially since during his suffering and his death, all of humanity died with him, 2 Corinthians 5.14. His death fulfilled the twofold principle, the twofold principle. Quote, one, it is the lifeblood that makes expiation for sins, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The shedding of the blood of sacrificial animals is a metaphor for the sacrificial death of the Son of God, which put away the sin of the world. This is what it means when it says that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. That's all of humanity in all of its times. It's a diachronic deliverance a redemption that takes in all people of all times. Now that Jesus, far from God, as we've looked at Hebrews 2.9, as the alternate translation seems to be the best, that Jesus, far from God, tasted death for every person is in his endurance of the cross, is the declaration of his universally saving significance and of the beneficent philanthropia, philanthropy of God, Titus 3.4, which made its appearance in Jesus and him crucified. While the philanthropia of God, that's God's philanthropy, a passionate love for mankind, appeared in this way, when it appeared in this way, in Jesus Christ and him crucified, we were saved. The many sons whom God called to glory would have to be all of humanity if we interpret this in the light of Romans 5.18, conflated with Romans 8.30. Justification and life to all, and <clears throat> all whom he justifies, he glorifies. Consequently, the salvation which seems to be insecure in many passages in Hebrews, and that's where preachers get it all wrong and preach about hell and about the loss of salvation and a lot of other doctrinal deviation. That's the reason why salvation, which seems to be insecure in such passages as Hebrews 6, 4 to 8, and Hebrews 10, 26 to 31, is not the universal salvation of all of humanity, and indeed all of creation, but the practical state of soteria, the present temporal taste or experience of the agapic or love dynamics of the coming age and of fellowship and intimacy with the Father. That's what's insecure. In other words, believers aren't always loving with unrestricted love or loving with a, in an unrestricted manner. The salvation is our participation in the agapic, it's A-G-A-P-I-C, the agapic dynamics of the coming age and fellowship and intimacy with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and participation in the community of fidelity, and that which Kevin McCruden calls salvation in a very concrete sense of finding mercy 
and grace. The state of soteria or salvation is the peak dynamic state of being in love in an unrestricted manner. Let me say that again. The state of soteria or the present condition of what we call salvation is the peak dynamic state of being in love in an unrestricted manner. And by that I mean love for God with all of the heart, mind, soul, and strength, love for all mankind, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, 1 Thessalonians 3, 12. That which John saw as a testimony to the fact that the sun had appeared once in the juncture of the aeons, or ages, to put away sin was blood and water. I'll say it again. That which John saw with his own two eyes when he saw Jesus crucified, that which he saw as a testimony to the fact that the sun had appeared once in the juncture of the eons to put away sin was blood and water pouring forth from the wound in the side of Jesus, the eternal son who had partaken of blood and flesh in order to defeat the one who ruled in the domain of death through his own death. Such a thing is unthinkable to human minds and never would even be thought of if God had not thought and done it and then put the thought in us. We can't think that thought independently of God. Now we may think with the mind of Christ now, for we have the mind of Christ. We can let it be in us, 1 Corinthians 2.16. Philippians 2.5, 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2. And to have the mind of Christ means to think thoughts that never would have come into the minds of human beings if God had not acted in such an unspeakably loving way. This is perhaps the main reason why blood should come before flesh in the phrase blood and flesh. Now, the devil can be said to have had the power of death in one sense. We still haven't described what that sense is in totality. But he was stripped of that power by Jesus and through Jesus' death, which led not to an ever-occupied grave, but to his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is linked to the resurrection of all of humanity the universal resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the prelude and guarantee of the resurrection of all the dead. In Christ, all will be made alive. Now, I want to make a little bit of an application to such a time that we're living in right now. The creation-wide pandemic, which was caused by human sin, is death. Death is a systemic problem in the human race. So the word systemic's being tossed around lately by racists in their accusation of people of racism, oddly enough. The fear of death ensnares the entire human race. That's what death being a systemic problem is. The fear of death ensnares the entire human race in one way or another distorting the image of God in men and women of every era of human history. Today, in a virus pandemic, 
We have people speaking of local or national mandates to wear masks, to keep social distance, to wash hands. These are called scientific measures because they result from the council of people who are called scientists. Some people would regard them as common sense measures. In any case, they are procedures that habitually practiced. They are habitually practiced because of contracting COVID-19, a novel virus. The fear of COVID is really the fear of death. All fears are rooted in the fear of death. Claustrophobia isn't the fear of enclosed spaces. It's the fear that that enclosed space will result in your death. The fear of heights is not, is not just the fear of heights. It's the fear of death, which would happen if you fell from that height. The disease called COVID-19, though not at all fatal to many, is nevertheless deadly to some. A relatively young and healthy person generally need not fear death by COVID, but such a person, unless they are entirely self-absorbed, may rightly be concerned that others who are vulnerable to dying from the disease could contract it from them. The point I'm making is that the fear of the so-called China virus, rightly so-called, is really based in the fear of death. In fact, all fears are rooted, for better or for worse, in the fear of death. It's one thing, however, to exercise caution with a view to others, and quite another to be obsessively and irrationally terrified, to never venture out of one's home or bunker for any reason, whatever, even for valid or necessary reasons. Whatever the case or degree, it is a fact of the human condition that we are systemically fearful of death. If someone bravely asserts that they are not, that's perhaps because they never had a brush with death or a near-death experience. Bravado is not bravery. Much more than not, Bravado is a mask for a deeper-than-usual insecurity. So the fear of death, now listen carefully, I'm just making an application, then I'm going to close this up. The fear of death itself is not entirely problematic. It serves as a proper motivation, for example, to stop at a red light or to check and double-check to assure that a firearm that you're showing someone is not loaded or to assure for as much safety and cover for yourself and your team in a combat situation. But a debilitating slavery to the fear of death is a problem, and the one who enslaves people by that fear is called the slanderer, a very busy person today, who is elsewhere called the prince of the power of the air, who works in the sons of disobedience or in children who can easily be stirred up to be wrathful, angry, and malicious. The Son of God came to save us from our sins. He also came to liberate us from slavery to the fear of death. Again, a proper fear of death, let's call it respect, due respect, is not a bad thing in itself. It's not even a problem. In fact, 
it's an aid to living in a safe and prosperous manner. An erroneous and slave-like fear of death, <clears throat> however, is the fear that involves a foreboding of punishment. This kind of fear is tormenting. It's a fear that the slanderer fosters and foments in people, especially who hear religious sermons every Sunday. It's a fear that death is a punishment inflicted by God, a punishment that does not end with physical death, but goes on into an eternal state of terrible suffering commonly known as hell. <clears throat> One of the devil's prime lies. Please note that the slanderer, whom Jesus elsewhere calls a liar, and a man-killer, in John 8, 44, is the one who foments this fear and enslaves humanity to it. Now, someone who believes in Jesus Christ and who understands that Jesus conquered death for them by his own death and resurrection may not know or understand that Jesus has also conquered death for everyone. Consequently, even the believer who is ignorant of the universally saving significance of Jesus, the Son of God, may be tormented by the fear of death because they fear that their loved ones who have not believed in Christ will perish forever in hell. Or perhaps they are already there, they think. Unless someone is an entirely unfeeling sociopath and has a seared conscience, or unless someone is deceived into thinking that God's justice is somehow served by their loved ones screaming in unrelenting agony for eternity for the unspeakable crime of having existed, that thought has to be tormenting. Fear of this kind is tormenting because it is all about punishment, the foreboding of punishment, <coughs> even eternal punishment. The one who has this fear the fear that involves punishment suffers by that very fear. Stay with me just a little longer. I'm almost done. There is a solution for that fear, and it is the, that the one who fears be perfected. There it is again, perfection terminology. Be perfected in love. Perfect love drives out all such fear. Perfect love involves the recognition of Jesus Christ. Listen carefully. Perfect love means seeing Jesus in his universally saving significance. For his salvation includes deliverance from our sins and their consequences and liberation from death, which is sin's wages for all of humanity. Perfect love is the love of our Father in heaven, whose love is for all the evil and the good the righteous and the unrighteous. He loves the unrighteous because the righteous one died for them. And when he, Christ, died, all the unrighteous ones died with him to be made alive with him in the resurrection of the dead. God loves the bad because the good died for the bad and the bad died when the good died in order to be raised up with him in justification and life. For us to be perfected, therefore, means to be perfected in love. 1 John 2.5, compared with Matthew 5.43-48, where it gets downright practical. Hebrews is about the perfection of the eternal Son through suffering and death. 
It is a discourse regarding completion, to get back to our beginnings. And the completion of the Son of God's love and the completion of God's sons and daughters in love. To be conformed to the image of God's unique Son. Listen to this one. To be conformed into the image of God's unique Son is to be conformed into the image of the Son of God's love. Romans 8.29 compared with Colossians 1.13. What's love got to do with it, you ask? And Tina asked that too. What's love got to do with it? The answer, everything. For God is love, and herein is love, that God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins so that we would live through him. Live through him. Live because of him. Live in him. Perfect love drives out all the fear that torments. And that's the fear of death as a punishment that goes on forever. One is not perfected in love unless one sees Jesus in his universally saving significance. Unless one understands Jesus' death as the solution to the death that came by the sin of the man Adam. A death that came to all of humanity. A death that is systemic in the human race. By the death of Jesus, the second sir, single inclusive representative, and the final Adam, death was conquered. Through the man Christ Jesus came the resurrection of the dead, just as through the man Adam came death. Jesus' resurrection is a resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of all the rest of humanity is the resurrection of the dead, where life will be systemic in all the human race. And for this we thank you, Father, and we will thank you for time and eternity, for the age of the ages. And may the glory of this message and the glory of this truth and the glory of this gospel redound to the glory of your Son, to whom belongs the dominion over death even now and to the age of the ages. Bless the going forth of this word of truth to the uplifting of many, to the lifting of the heads and the souls and the hearts of many who require it. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.